Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Heath. <laughs> I'm one of the uh, elders here at City Church, Melissa. I'll move this back a little bit here. Um, am I blocking the screen? Maybe I should come on a little sideways. I'm good? Okay. Don't do this that often, but... Um, <clears throat> if I haven't met you personally, uh, I'm sorry for that. I, I'll be up here at the end of service, uh, me and some of the other elders, so if you would, just uh, come up here and introduce yourself. I'd love to know who you are. Um, <clears throat> I want to start with a question this morning. The question is this, how many of you guys normally go through the garage door of your house? Okay, maybe half. Uh, <clears throat> the front door of my house is really just a guest entrance. Right? Uh, no one who lives with me goes through that way. Um, actually, I don't even have a key to my front door because I never use it. And I don't think the people who lived in my house before had the key either. So, <clears throat> um, The garage door has some advantages, right? One of the, one of the advantages is it's a shorter path. It's, uh, it's more convenient, and um, it brings you directly into the most important room in the whole house, which is, of course... The kitchen, because that's where the food is, right? Uh, but when you enter in that way, when you go through the garage, you have to see the garage itself, and that really is a sight to behold. Uh, don't judge me. Yeah. Don't judge me. I'm sure all your garages are perfectly organized, everything in a bin and everything in its place, uh, but not our garage. Everything is sort of left out, sort of randomly on shelves and on little folding tables and on the floor sometimes. Um, uh, it's left out for someone else to sort of put back in its place. And um, the garage will just, it just kind of gives you like this realistic view of my household, right? It's the unedited version of our house. So when you walk through that way, you get to see it and you get to see who the real Gallimores are. Uh, whereas if you went through the front door, you get sort of get the faux view, right? The, uh, <laughs> You get the cleaned up, sort of dust-free representation. Uh, but if you look around the garage, one thing you'll notice is that you'll be able to see kind of what we've been up to, what projects we've been working on. Um, kind of just, you know, it, maybe it's a, a long span of time, but just you'll be able to see and get an idea of what we've been about. Uh, that's kind of what I want to do today. Before we just jump right into Ephesians 5 and just hit it hard, I want to, I want to go back and I want to look at what we've already picked up and already set down uh, the last few weeks in Ephesians. Um, I could truly say that the letter of Ephesians, um, it's been ministering to my heart. Uh, after coming off the holidays, sort of the busyness of that uh, time, I just, it's like a constant barrage of stuff. Like Ephesians has sort of helped me reset, sort of helped me kind of get focused on what's important again. And uh, just thinking about my relationship with the Lord. And so from a high level, the very big picture of Ephesians, it's really divided into two parts, right? Part one is Paul just laying out the gospel story. It's chapters one through three. Um, it's what God's been up to. And part two, chapters four through six, Paul really focuses on our story, like our response to this gospel, this new identity that he talks about in chapters one through three, like how should we live in light of this? Um, and so just to hit it quick, Chapter 1 is really a poem and a prayer. Paul just, he recaps all these blessings that we have in Christ. And 
Verse 10 is the key verse. He says, he just gives us this larger view of the gospel plan, which is to unite everything under Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This idea of unity and oneness. Then he prays for us. He prays that we'd be able to experience the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Chapter 2, he reminds us how the gospel came to us. Key verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We were dead. We were children of wrath. We had no hope. We had no purpose. But God. He intervened. We were created in Christ Jesus. We are refashioned as his workmanship. And now we can finally do the good things that he set up for us. We can finally walk a good path. Not only that, but now we're joined up to this new multi-ethnic family. Part of his covenant people. It breaks down. The gospel breaks down this dividing wall that was there. Key verse, verse 13. We who were far off have been brought close by the blood of the Holy One. And then in chapter 3, Paul tells us about his unique calling. He was giving the calling to take the light to the Gentiles, to us. He closes the first half of the letter with another prayer, a prayer for spiritual strength. Verse 18 and 19, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, strengthened by God's Spirit so that you can just get a grasp of Christ's love for you. That's his prayer for us. Part two, he opens in chapter four. He wants to talk about our story, our response to this gospel, this new identity that we have in Christ. And he joins the two parts of the letter with this key word, therefore. Because of chapters 1 through 3, therefore, chapters 4 through 6. In chapter 4, he starts with the church. Believers in community, that's us. It's made up of all these different people. All these different parts, all these different backgrounds. But the key idea here is that we are all now one in Christ. One body, unified by one spirit. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. However, unity is not the same as uniformity. There's many gifts given by the Spirit. All these diverse gifts given by one Spirit in order to build up His church. Then He gives this metaphor, a picture of what it's like to be built up in this new church, what it should look like. The picture is of one new man, a new humanity, with Christ as the head and us, the church, as His body. And then, after he addresses the church and the unity, he switches gears and then he's focused on us again, individuals. What should we be about as believers? He challenges every Christian to take off their old self like a set of clothes and put on this new humanity like a shirt where the image of God is being restored. He goes through this long section, chapter 4, mostly, and some through chapter 5. It's like 33 verses where he just compares this old humanity with the new humanity. The old flesh, instead of lying, right? new humans speak truth. 
Instead of harboring anger, new humans try to resolve conflict peacefully. And instead of stealing, new humans give generously. In place of gossip that tears down, the new humanity offers encouraging words that build up. Instead of seeking revenge, new humans offer forgiveness. Instead of gratifying every sexual impulse, the new human seeks to have self-control over the flesh and over their body. Instead of getting drunk, new humans seek to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Key verse, verse 8. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Last week, Ryan talked on this, and he brought our attention to this. You are light. He's talking about our union with Christ. He's talking about Christ in us. And if you missed it, you should take the time to go back and listen to that sermon. Um, There was a really neat quote about from Martin Luther about us. It's like a marriage. Jesus is with us now. He's in us. He's with us, and he's for us. We're together now for better or for worse, just like a marriage. So that's where we are right now. Um, when we walk through the garage door of Ephesians, right, this is what we see. We need to remember that because we need to remember what God has been up to in our church and in us and what we're supposed to be about. Right? It's about being in union with Christ, our connection with him. It's about being in unity with the body, right? his church. And it's about putting on this new creation, individual growth and development. It's just good to be reminded of all this because of where we are in the story, right? The story isn't over. It's still playing out. It could still go bad for you. We're not, we're still in this world that's broken, right? In the pace of this life, with its smartphones, robocalls, AI algorithms, traffic jams, endless barrage of information, screens, social media, nonstop notifications, TikTok, It's all very overwhelming to our souls. And our souls were made to connect to God, right? We're made to be in union with him. But that doesn't happen at the speed of a smartphone. Through all this overstimulation and constant world-level bad news, think coronavirus, right? Food shortages in Venezuela, right? We just get that all day long, day after day after day the net result, right? We just get anesthetized to the things of God because we're just ingrained like ticks in the world. We just, we just can't even, we just can't connect, right? The net result is we could kind of lull to sleep like a, like a baby in an airport that's just all this noise around, they can sleep because it's constant noise. But last week we ended with verse 14 where Paul tells us to wake up. Verse 14, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine in you. He says, wake up. Time for sleeping is over. Time for being dead is over. Rise up. Take your place in the story. Become who you really are. Respond to this gospel. That's chapters 4 through 6, response, our response to the gospel. The light of Christ is shining in you now. Be the light. There's darkness all around you. So we pick back up. Verse 15 and 16 is where we are today. 
Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Look carefully, in another version, it says walk circumspectly. That means to be cautious. It means to look all around. It implies careful consideration of every circumstance. Paul is asking you if your walk lines up with all those comparisons that he just gave. Does your walk reflect your new identity? Is it Christ-like? Does it shine light on the world, the way you walk? To look circumspectly is to examine every area of the walk. The way you talk to others, right? How do you drive in traffic? Is it Christ-like? Do you give generously to others and the church? What kind of car do you drive? What are the people that you let walk with you through life? What are they like? Is there anything in your walk that's grieving the Holy Spirit? That's what Paul's talking about. And how do you handle it when things don't go well? How do you handle pain? How do you handle suffering? How do you handle this gift of this new heart that God has given you? And honestly, that's just looking surface level. That's the stuff we can see with our eyes. We need to look deeper. We need to look with the eyes of the heart. We should go further, right? All those same questions, but with this new qualifier of motive. Like, why? Why did you do that? What's your real motivation under the hood that nobody else can see? God can see that. That's the level that Jesus goes to over and over. It's the heart beneath the action, right? You can give everything, but if you did it to impress someone, your goodness is just, it's filthy in God's eyes. You can read your Bible every morning. You can memorize whole chapters of Scripture. But if you didn't do it to become like Jesus, then you wasted your time. And you could come to church early every week. You could set up every chair. You can work your fingers to the bone. But if you did it to check the box, to sort of earn your standing before God, you fail the motive test. We're all sinners. So why does personal holiness even matter? I mean, what's the point? The point is, it's either your life or it's a life that's surrendered to Christ. Either you're living for your own glory or you're living for His glory. Either you have both feet on His path or you're lost or straying away. There's no gray area when it comes to the holiness that Christ calls us to. You're either set apart for Him or you're like everyone else. That's holiness. And oh yes, Holiness matters. It matters. You want to know a quick way that you can get a kid to doubt that Jesus work in you, that it can really change lives? Yell at your family and then force them to sit down and pray over dinner. You want to know a quick way to get your neighbor to dismiss your faith? Tell them you're a Christian and then let them see you uh, lose your temper towards your dog. Right? They're going to be like, okay, this, clearly this guy's he's not what he says he is. Students, you want to know a quick way that you can ruin your witness at school? Claim that you love Jesus and then ask a friend to help you cheat on a test. 
Personal holiness matters because you have limited time. He says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. You have limited time to shine that light that's been put in you. Don't waste your opportunities. Don't waste them. But remember, from chapter 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you are saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast, for we are His workmanship. Holiness is part of His work in you. You could try and sort of white-knuckle it. You can try to get this better behavior going on, but that's not what Jesus is after. He's after transformation from the inside out. Inside. He's like a supernatural heart surgeon. And he's changing you slowly, transforming you inside out in his own timing. He also says, don't walk as unwise, but as wise. Point one on walking wise. If you want to walk wisely, you need to understand your situation. Yes, you've been given a new life. Yes, you've been pulled out of death. You are restored, and you have this restored union with God, but that's not the whole picture, because evil is real. He says the days are evil. You have multiple enemies. They're seeking to steal, kill, and destroy your life. They want to disrupt that union. They want to pull you apart from God, to cut you off from your lifeline with Christ, and to send you back to living the way you were before, this old humanity not the new humanity. They want to block you from letting that light shine. The Bible tells us we have three main enemies. We've got to keep them on tabs all the time. Number one enemy, Satan himself, father of lies, the accuser and the tempter. Enemy number two, your old sin nature, your flesh. It's like having your own personal Judas Iscariot all the time with you ready to just trip you up at a moment's notice. You better believe he will. You better watch him. And number three, you have the world system. You see, the world hates Christ. It's always hated Christ. And the world system is set up to disrupt that union, to pull you away from God. The spirit of our age, busyness. If the world system can just keep you running on this hamster wheel of activity, right? you'll just be constantly distracted from what God's trying to tell you. You won't even be able to hear his voice because of the noise of the activity level. Those enemies love to work together, by the way. The world system is designed to wear you out. It's just to run you until you are empty. And you are run down. And as soon as you're run down... Your flesh is going to pipe in. It's going to say, hey, I'm empty. I need something. That looks really good. Go get it. Give it to me. And then Satan, man, he's right there. He's already, you're 90% in because you're empty and your flesh is there. It's ready to just dive in, to betray you. And all Satan has to do is put one little evil thought in your head. You're 90% in. Anything to let you get some relief from the pain. Right? Just a little relief. It'll make you feel better. Instead of looking to Christ for restoration. Right? It's relief versus restoration. We need restoration. And let me remind you that Jesus, 
He was a hunted man. From the day his star first appeared until he was betrayed with a kiss, evil was out to get him all the time. All the time. You start living for Jesus, you will be opposed. Evil will come find you. So you better be watching. That's what he's talking about when he says, stay wise. Walk as wise. Stay vigilant. Don't let your lifeline get cut off. Stay connected to God. Break that cycle. Point number two, you want to walk wisely? Then you you need to understand what true holiness is really about. Jesus says, abide in me. Stay in me. Get the life I have for you. It's that restoration that I was talking about. True holiness isn't about looking good for other people. It's not about following some rules. It's not about some kind of self-righteousness. First, it's about abiding in Him. It's about protecting the union. Not letting anything disrupt that lifeline. Not letting anything steal your affections for Christ. We think... If we're holy, then somehow that'll get us closer to God. If we, just, if we just act holy, then we'll get there. That's backwards. First you abide in Jesus, and then you get His holiness in you. That's where it comes from. John fourteen thirty. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. How powerful is that? He has no claim on me. That's the holiness that we're after. I want that. I want that so I can be effective. Right? I want it so that I can be like Jesus when I pray. I want to be an instrument in God's hands. Right? I want to be like the Chris Kyle of spiritual warfare. Right? When, when the people that I love are taking enemy fire, right, I want to be able to pray with the guiding of the Holy Spirit and find out clarity, right? To, to train my sights on whatever is taking them out and to fire back, right? I want to use my strength of faith for the ones I love, right? The ones in my care. I mean, aren't you tired of seeing your friends hurting? Aren't you tired of suffering? Don't you want to see breakthrough? Right? And when I'm taking fire, when I'm wandering away, when I'm the one who's getting dragged off, thank God I have friends who will pray for me. Right? They will fight for me. They will go to their knees and fight for me. Those are people you want in your life. That's what true holiness is about. It's about staying close to the power so you can be effective. In verse 17, he says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Once you understand your situation, once you sort of get your bearings, and kind of know where you are in the story that God's telling you, right, you've got that union now, the very next question right, should be, what, what should I be doing? Like, what's God's will for my life? Right? How, how do you align with Him? How do I impact the story? Right? Part one of this is that is sort of God's general will. All Christians, he has one will for all Christians. Remake them into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face 
beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. His will for you is to be transformed, students. From glory to glory. His will is to restore your ability to reflect His Son. And part two of that is more specific will. Right? Like, should I take this job? Should I marry this person? Should I buy this house or this house? So many life choices. How do you know that you're in line with God's will? There's no amount of self-help. There's not enough books in the world. There's not enough counselors for you to successfully navigate life's choices in this broken world without hearing from Jesus. You can't do it on your own. And you're not supposed to. John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You need way more than worldly wisdom to navigate. You need God's wisdom. Of course you need the Bible. Of course you need the Scriptures to help you make wise decisions. But you also need to hear from God. You need to pray. You have to pray. We're so resistant to that. We want to do it on our own. You have to pray. Try and find your way without listening to your shepherd. Man, you're setting yourself up for major loss. Philippians 4, 6. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Moving on to verse 18. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. This is Paul's last comparison of the old flesh and new flesh. This old humanity new humanity. The old humanity chases the last glass of wine until they have lost all their inhibitions. The new humanity doesn't look like that. Instead, they're filling themselves to the brim with the Holy Spirit, the absolute max with the Holy Spirit. First thing I need to say about this is drinking wine is not a sin. You know how I know that? Because Jesus himself makes wine as his very first miracle to the world to show his glory. What Paul is talking about here is being drunk. Debauchery means an excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures. Right? When you're drunk, it blocks you from having proper control over your body and over your decisions. Right? Being drunk is the opposite of being vigilant that I was talking about earlier. It's like opening the door to your enemies and like, come on in, I'm drunk. Let's do this. Right? He says, no, be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19 and 21, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He pauses here and he spells out what being under the influence of the Spirit is all about. It's four things. Four things. Number one, singing together. What we just did. Number two, singing by yourself. Singing alone. The very first thing that Paul thinks about when he thinks about people who are overfilling with the Spirit is music. It's not speaking in tongues. It's not prophesying. It's not having faith that can move mountains. It's just singing. The third sign of being under the Spirit's influence is being thankful for everything. And fourth is that people under the Spirit's influence will, they'll compel themselves to be put underneath other people. Right? 
They will elevate others to be more important than themselves, to submit to one another. I don't have enough time to expand on all those points, but I want to talk about point one and point two. Right? The singing. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Singing privately and singing corporately. It's like this universal language of the Spirit. It spans all languages, all cultures. You don't need a theology degree. You don't even, know how to, you don't even need to know how to read. Right? You can be one-year-old. You can be 101 years old. All you have to do is open your mouth and let the Spirit give honor to the Father and to the Son through you. Just like we sang earlier, right? when we sing praises to our Lord, we're joining a thousand generations before us, elevating Him on His throne. So, just to wrap that up this morning, um, I, was, I actually read this this morning when I was reading in my quiet time, Mark chapter 14 when Jesus is finishing up his last supper and he's on his way to the garden, he's walking to where he's going to be betrayed. You know what he did? Him and his disciples? They sang a hymn. They sang a hymn. When we worship in song, it's not just words. Right? It's got power. Whenever we're shining, right? it's, like, it's the first way that we can reflect his light. It's the first way, the easiest way we can shine back on the one who's shining on us. And whenever we're shining, we're pushing back darkness. Jesus was pushing back the darkness when he sang his hymn. And we're going to close today with another song. Uh, I believe it's called Singing in the Victory. And it's all about what Jesus has done and what he's doing in us. And the chorus ends with these words, Because I am yours forever, and Jesus, you are mine. And the ending, it says, There is no one like you, God. Love immeasurable and strong. Let's sing to that end. And don't just sing. Sing in response to the gospel. Sing from this abundance of life in you. Worship from this overflow of the Spirit. Let's reflect back His light. Let's push back the darkness. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sundays at 1030 a.m. at 2950 Cardinal Drive, and we'd love to meet you this coming week. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.